Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. In this episode, we're talking about sandbagging on Hardware Bot, and Darren gives us his first impressions on the PS4. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McCain. We like to follow a lot of the competitions that happen on Hardware Bot, and one of them that just recently completed was the Country Cup. And for those of you that may not know, the Country Cup is where countries, not individual teams, will submit scores to the different stages. And the team, which would be in this case the country, with the highest score, wins. So this is not like the Olympics where it's an organized team sponsored by the country, but rather the ability for anyone in that region or country to submit scores. And that is helped, I know, by the hardware requirements. Yes, and that is where you know you might have a wide variety of hardware that you need to submit. So it'd be like a GTX 260 for one benchmark, a 780 for another benchmark. And the idea is that somebody in that country is going to have that hardware to be able to submit a score. The winners of this last country cup was Australia. And there is one active team in Australia, Team AU, which is a bunch of benchmarkers that are kind of within the same region. So they have the ability to get together, compare scores, and help each other bench. Well, that's always nice. Definitely an advantage. Right. Team AU was leading the Country Cup early on, and then they kind of fell behind, weren't really submitting a bunch of scores, and then at the very end kind of swooped in and ended up winning the Country Cup. Oh, okay. And a lot of the fodder from that was other competitors complaining that Team AU was sandbagged. Ooh, so controversial ending. Yes, very controversial. So much, in fact, that Peter from Hardware Bot wrote an article in response to that saying that sandbagging isn't a crime. You need to embrace how the sandbagging system works. And he goes on to kind of describe what the situation was, and he kind of proposed a, a solution, not necessarily one that's going to be sanctioned, but kind of an idea that... You know, you do this as to give yourself a competitive edge. And I kind of had a different opinion, and I wanted to talk to you about sandbagging in general. Is sandbagging a legitimate strategy? Yes. Is it a legitimate strategy, or is it really somebody cheating? The use of the term sandbagging is really interesting to me. Yeah, I always thought it came from golf. But I believe you did an internet search that says otherwise, correct? Yeah, and I had known that originally the term sandbagging or a sandbagger was an older term. So I'll just paraphrase from a really nice description from about.com where they talk about it from a golf standpoint. So it turns out that not surprisingly, the origin of the term sandbagging really comes from folks using a bag full of sand or rocks as a weapon, a cutthroat or whatever the original term would be. And so these street thugs would use this sandbag as a weapon. Kind of like an old version of a sock full of nickels. It turns out, at least according to about.com, that sandbagging didn't go directly to golf, but originally came from poker. I'm going to read this because it's great. Say you're in a poker match and you're dealt a fantastic hand. If you place a huge bet right off the bat, well, what happens? You might scare off your poker mates into folding. So instead, you might choose to bet small amounts, hoping to keep your opponents in the match, increasing the pot, and 
upping until the moment you show your cards. Okay, and that is actually a legitimate way of betting. As WorldDetective.com has quoted, a player who hells off raising the stakes in order to lull the other players into a false sense of security. The poker sandbagger would pounce late in the game, clobbering the other players with his good hand. So you can see the visualization of the bag of sand and whacking your opponent, which makes a lot of sense in the term sandbagging. Right, and that is, the way it's described, is kind of what happened with Team AU, except that we don't know that that's exactly what happened. Well, and it's difficult to understand because legitimately, if you submit scores and you're in the lead, then naturally you wouldn't need to submit scores until someone had beat you. Correct. You can also think of it from the standpoint of you're submitting scores, you're in the lead, and now you need new hardware so that you can compete in the next stage. Or maybe the hardware that you have isn't binned correctly, so you're going to bend some more hardware. You know, you might get the hardware late in the game. So there's no way of knowing exactly when a score was recorded unless it had a timestamp on it. The competition, if I understand correctly, doesn't care when the score was submitted. It doesn't even care when it was recorded as long as it's during the competition's time. Right. The only time that matters is when the competition ends. And that kind of reminds me of something else in the world. The only time it matters is at the very end, and that is eBay. So I agree. In an online auction, this is a very common technique. And I'm sure everybody's familiar with eBay or your favorite auction site in that you have kind of a couple of different strategies. One is to bid early and use their bid butler functionality to set your max bid and hope that no one else goes over it before the auction closes. Yeah, a proxy bid. So you can bid up to $1,000, for instance, if that is what you're willing to pay for this particular product. So your max is still hidden by the functionality of the auction site, and you only see what's the current winning bid, not unlike what you described in the cup. Mm -hmm. But as many are aware, there's a term that's come into effect for auction sites and eBay in particular, which is called sniping. Yes, and a sniper will go, not necessarily doing a headshot from across the room, (laughs) but they will watch an auction until the last 20 seconds and then just basically bid whatever they're going to pay. And if they happen to win, they happen to win. That leaves the person that is currently leading the auction at a disadvantage because now they have to watch it to the very, very end. And if they have a sniper come in, they have to go and outbid them really quickly if they really want it. If you're playing on for the snipers or against the snipers, you're at a disadvantage to being ahead before the very end of it. Right. You've already shown your hand, as they would say in poker. And they only need to put in one bid or a couple of very quick bids to fill out what your max is and take the auction. Whereas you might have been willing to pay a lot more knowing that you'd win. You felt comfortable that you already had the winning bid, so you didn't need to. Sniping like the headshot, comes out of nowhere and takes you out. Exactly. Peter goes on to talk about how you need to embrace a strategy when you're competing in an online competition. So not necessarily submitting your best score early, but submit some of the scores that you were you know, testing hardware just to get your name on the board. I, for one, I don't really prescribe to that. When I do a benchmark, I'm going to submit my best score because that is the way I feel is proper. But what's the response? If someone edges you out, you go back to the lab, right? If you have hardware to do it, you go back to the lab and you start over and you keep going. 
It, the same is in a, like a live competition, for instance. You, a lot of times there's rules in place saying that the score that you want to submit has to be inspected by a judge before it can be submitted. That makes sense. So, so that way, you know, the scores are done in real time. That way you can watch the, the scoreboard and know if somebody's in the lead. And at that point, if the other competitors think that they can beat you, then they're going to submit a score. Otherwise, they'll just submit for placement. You can't do that in an offline competition like the Country Cup or, you know, any of these other competitions that happen over a month time span. Well, no, because you don't have that immediate feedback and that, I guess, sense of what else is going on. You don't have the pulse. You don't know what other people's hands are like. And that is where Peter comes in saying, hey, well, we need to have like a, a way to watch what's happening right toward the end of a competition. So he was talking about having a dark time where people can still submit scores, but you won't see the scoreboard change. Right. And then maybe three hours before the end of the competition, you would start randomly showing the scores. Right. So there's sort of a reveal. Right. A controlled reveal. A controlled reveal. And maybe it's the the order is when the, the scores are submitted, or maybe it's just random and they're, they're showing what they have. The benefit of this that I kind of see is that it removes people from actually feeling bad about sandbagging. The real benefit is that you can watch. So now you can make it a live event. So you can do a live stream for the last three hours of a competition and watch the scoreboard and how it changes and analyze some of the scores and why this one might actually win, you know, and see what the percentages are of somebody getting a better score. But to do that is to neutralize that legit strategy or to say that that's not a legit strategy because you're taking that completely out of the loop. In fact, it almost adds a random element to the end because you don't know what your position is, so you don't know. And in fact, hardware is a lot different than sandbagging in poker or in golf even, in a sense that you could throw a Hail Mary clock and burn up your equipment to get the win if you thought that was necessary, where you wouldn't take that stance at all if you thought you had the win. In fact, I would propose maybe a different strategy that sort of fits in line with the auction mentality. A lot of the newer auction sites make it so that if there has been a bid change in the last five minutes, they extend the clock to allow the opponent accurate response time, some as much as 30 minutes. Now that might work, assuming that the people that are trying to bid out for the lead are able to answer with a score. Right. And that's also... A kind of approving of a sandbag score where you're kind of holding on to the, the very last one that you have and then you just keep going and going and going. In theory, that style of competition might go on for almost ever. Well, and that's true because depending on how deep the pockets are, how much hardware you have at your disposal, you could trade responses for a great deal of time. Right. The one thing I thought about in terms of the Country Cup was, and maybe this is in there and I just haven't seen it, when teams in a country are submitting scores, a lot of times it's people within a team. And within that team, you have people in the Pro OC League, you have people in the Extreme OC League, and then also in the Overclocking League. Right. And those are people that are segmented by their cooling method or sure. being supported. I would almost propose that to kind of remove the sandbagging aspect, because the way I see sandbagging in Overclocking is somebody with really deep pockets, somebody with the means to being able to get something done. A sponsored overclocker, for example. Exactly. They're going to have the high-end hardware. So maybe only one 
pro-OC overclocker is allowed to submit a score to help their country. Oh, that could work. After that, then you have to have a certain amount of extreme OC guys actually submit. So that way it's really encompassing everybody within the country and gets those people that are active in their teams getting more people involved. And it also would remove the fact that, you know, if there was two pro-OC people that submitting to different stages, they would have obviously the ability to get a really good score and help their team out. But by removing that, then it removes the fact that you're sandbagging to a person with the means taking advantage of people without. The problem there is it's very difficult to identify those folks and classify them unless they are very actively participating in the hardware bot levels. To a certain degree, the overclockers are already scheduled in the different stages. Well, that's true. But that doesn't remove the fact that you know, somebody could be benching, like for instance, you and I could be benching. Mm -hmm. You might be in the overclocker league. I'm in extreme OC. I might share a score with you. You know, we're benching together. Hey, you actually ran this one. Now you can go and submit it. But really it's a score that was made with my hardware, for instance. Well, I know this has been something that's been a problem with hardware bot from the beginning is trying to make sure that people aren't sharing hardware and that the scores are legitimately being submitted by the submitter and not in proxy. It's an honesty thing, and mm -hmm. it's just like golf. And that's where sandbagging is kind of a, I call it a golf term, and it's one that I don't know if it's actually ever going to be solved. So you almost need to embrace it until somebody can come along with an accurate way of either satisfying the masses or making it legitimate. And the reality is the folks that are doing the sandbagging or sniping, to maybe use a more accurate term, they view this as a legitimate strategy and you don't want to scare those folks off because they are true competitors. And in this case, they did win the cup. Darren and I are both PC gamers for the most part. And we're interested in consoles, but we resisted talking about the next generation consoles aside from the basic hardware because every system has kind of a platform that's running on. And... Microsoft and Sony are both really jonesing for getting people on their platform and using their system. And this generation, they've really approached that in different ways. So it's been, it's been challenging to compare and contrast, especially when we didn't have the hardware in hand. I know that you are a PlayStation user. I think you had the PlayStation 3 and didn't you have one before then? I've had every generation of PlayStation. In fact, originally had a PlayStation 2, and an Xbox at the same time. But that's the last time that I had an Xbox. And I am an Xbox aficionado. I had uh, the original Xbox, and then it died, and then I got another one. Followed that up with an Xbox 360, and now we actually have two of them in the house. Oh, wow. So no Xbox One, though. I'm actually kind of resisting because I don't like the fact that it's a media center, and I just I don't play games on it too much, so... I might get one, but uh, I understand you got a new little toy. Well, yeah, I did. In fact, my wife surprised me with a PlayStation 4 just over a week back now, and I have now put a decent amount of time into it. And to be fair, as you mentioned, we're a bit of a PlayStation family, and with this latest generation, it was a difficult call to make because, frankly, they are being marketed very differently. And so, a tough call. Well... How about we start with what are the fundamental differences between the 3 and the 4? I know the 3 was touted as a Blu-ray player, an advanced Blu-ray player. Right. 
but it was really a gaming machine. Well, I think that the PlayStation 4 has marketed itself as more of a pure gaming machine, whereas the Xbox, this generation at least, has tried to tout the full multimedia experience and tried to make itself more of the centerpiece of your entertainment system, and somewhat successfully and somewhat unsuccessfully. But ultimately, because I get those functions elsewhere, that kind of pushed me back towards the PlayStation. And since I was a PlayStation 3 guy, it's very easy for me to adapt to the PlayStation 4. But the PlayStation 4 has really moved more into a pure gaming experience than the 3 did. How so? Things about the PlayStation 4 that you may not be aware of, or maybe are, is that the PlayStation 4 has multimedia functionality, but it's really secondary. In fact, the PlayStation 4 has less multimedia functionality than the PlayStation 3. So you can't play Blu-ray movies on it? Um, it does play Blu-ray, and so does the Xbox One or the X-Bone, maybe. Yeah, X-Bone. But since we don't have one of those, we can just concentrate on the board. But there area. is functionality missing from the PlayStation 4 that was in the PlayStation 3. An example of that is the PlayStation 3 was really touted as the most versatile multimedia consumption device. It played nearly every kind of video format and nearly every kind of audio format. And most notably, the PlayStation 4 has ignored, for the large part, most of the audio functionality that was in PlayStation 3. For example, if you're an aficionado of audio, it does not play Super Audio CDs or SACDs. And in fact, it only plays some of the more common functions of uh, MP3s, and it won't actually play a multimedia MP3 disc or, oh my gosh, any of those DivX-style videos. And it probably will, but it doesn't out-of-the-box support some of these functions. Right. Well, with PlayStation 3, they issued firmware updates that added and subtracted functionality too, right? That's very true. And so the PlayStation 4 supports the most common functionality as opposed to trying to have the most compatibility. Speaking of compatibility, mm -hmm. what about the games? Well, let's just kill right off the bat that the PlayStation 4 does not play PlayStation 3 games. My heart just sunk. That's a huge deal, especially in my house, because I have a large library of PlayStation 3 games, including a bunch that I haven't played. So the PlayStation 4 has promised more functionality, but right now how they've handled it is some of the more recent games, let's take, say, Ghosts, Injustice, uh, offer you the ability to, if you have it for the PlayStation 3, you can purchase upgraded PlayStation 4 functionality for $10, which is not bad. So is that, um, for the lack of not knowing what it is, like a Steam service where you could buy the game and just download it to your box? Yes, but it's not even that simple because it checks to see what format you had it in previously. So if you had, let's use uh, Injustice, for example. If you had purchased Injustice as a digital download on your PlayStation 3, so you don't have physical media, then you can upgrade to the physical downloaded version for the PlayStation 4 for $10. If, like me, you have the physical media, you can still purchase the upgraded functionality on the PlayStation 4 for $10, but it will do a physical disc check for that PlayStation 3 disc before it launches the 4. So it... <laughs> does not allow you to, oh, hey, upgrade, and then sell your disc to make up the difference. Well, that's smart. Yeah. I mean, that that's also old PC habit stuff, you know, like playing Crisis, for instance. You yes. can play it by just installing it, but you still have to have the disc to activate the game. Exactly. 
So not a big surprise, but I had hoped for that. But the difference also between the PlayStation 4 and the PlayStation 3 that sort of makes up for that is that the PlayStation 3, most of the online functionality was free. In fact, all of the core functionality was free. And on the PlayStation 4, you can do some online functionality without it. But multimedia and multiplayer gaming requires you to pay for the PlayStation Plus membership now. And that is a big killjoy for us PlayStation 3 owners. Well, that also mimics what um, Xbox Live was. That's correct, it does. That's one of the reasons for it is Xbox Live is truly the dominant and more feature-rich. But part of the reason for that is you are paying for it so they could afford development and resources and improvement, whereas the PlayStation's free functionality really was very good for free, but there was not much attempt to make it better. I want to say that I finally bought Xbox Live. You know, for the longest time, I never used it because I didn't think I needed to. I would go buy a game disc and then bring it home, slap it in the Xbox, and I could play it. It was always hooked up to the internet, so whenever there was an update, it would download the update, but I didn't need a live account for it. Right, and if you don't play a lot of multiplayer and you don't have guild or clan functionality needs, you didn't really need it for most games. No, and now that we have two 360s in the house, we are we bought the, the live for a year, I think, also that we could use the cloud functionality and transfer save games between the two Xboxes. Oh, that makes sense. And I still think that I should have been able to put it onto a thumb drive and plug them in between the two without needing to have live, but it made it easy. And then at that point, it's like, well, all of our save games are on on the cloud. So if we don't have live, then we lose all of our save games. And it's interesting that you bring up the cloud because that was a big bone of contention with the original Xbox press release. It seemed to point to a state where Microsoft was not going to have physical media for a lot of their games. So you would have to use the cloud for your games. Well, Xbone never originally had an optical drive because it was supposed to be all DLC. Big outcrying for that. And to be fair, it sort of fits the market that they're pushing that you need some sort of physical media to be a multimedia device because you're going to rent movies. Let's talk about the physical attributes of the PlayStation 4. Graphics? Uh, Gorgeous. Although, to be fair, like always, the launch titles don't really show off the full potential. In fact, I have four games. I bought Knack. It was cheap and family-friendly. Lego Marvel, which I had planned to purchase on the PlayStation 3 and just hadn't gotten around to it. I purchased uh, Black Flag, which is the latest Assassin's Creed. Which I think is a perfect game for a console, not so much for the PC. Honestly, yeah. And I've spent probably the most time playing it. And I also bought Call of Duty Ghosts, mostly because that's what all my friends are multiplayer playing, and I hadn't purchased it on the PC yet. Yeah. So first-person shooter with a console, probably not the easiest thing to do when you're used to third-person style games. Yeah, and now I have to buy Plus if I want to play with my buddies, and I'm kind of on the fence still. (laughs) So I've been playing the single player, not where it shines, but it's probably the prettiest of those games, although Black Flag is also gorgeous. Now, Black Flag has arguably probably the most intense graphics engine. Yes. So in terms of being able to keep up, you know, with um, things that are happening on screen, the PlayStation 4, there's no hitches at all? Absolutely. Or... And in fact, I had played Assassin's Creed 3 on the PlayStation 3 quite a bit. Mm-hmm. 
and did notice occasional stuttering and slowdown, especially during the redraw when you're moving very quickly from place to place. Right. And the PlayStation 4, flawless. And in fact, one of the biggest things I've noticed about the PlayStation 4 over the PlayStation 3 is that occasionally the PlayStation 3 gets uh, maybe a little crabby and those fans whine up and you can really hear it have not had that experience on the PlayStation 4 at all, which yeah. was a surprise. Well, I think that that's probably based on the hardware, the new hardware that's in it. When the original PlayStation 3 and the 360 came out, the game titles were just ports from the previous generation, so they played extremely well. But now that we have launch titles that are really demanding, like Black Flag, and it's playing well on that console, that means that you know they tune the hardware well. That's, that's a good thing. And there's a lot to be said for that because really we've talked about the hardware before. So not to Mm -hmm. go into great depth, but essentially both the new Xbox and the PlayStation 4 are essentially pretty mainstream gaming PCs just right out of the box. Yeah, well, they're kind of the same hardware. So big benefits, which we've talked about uh, a lot really, in that the porting becomes a lot easier. And in fact, that leads me to thinking about, you know, a lot of the upcoming games, and now I'm going to have to make the decision on what's a PC game for me versus what's a console game. And you really nailed it. I mean, I could be playing Assassin's Creed on my PC, but there's no discernible advantage, and I have a controller for my PC. Well, you are a console gamer as well as a PC gamer. I'm not so much. That's true. So speaking of the interface for the console, we're are looking at the controller. Yes. So the controller is identical to PS3, or have they made some changes? They have. They've improved it quite a bit in most people's views, and my initial impression is that it's a comfortable evolutionary step forward. Essentially, the shape is the same. Now, also, a little grumble, but I have, I think, nine PlayStation 3 controllers. I've just accumulated them over the years as they've come with games or they were cheap to get pink or camo or whatever was fun at the time. Okay. And no compatibility with the PlayStation 4. Well, that's not surprising, really. Yeah, but it is a little bit odd. I'm a little spoiled because we have a Wii in the house. It doesn't get a lot of play because, uh, frankly, it's a Wii. And my kids are young, so they don't play much, if at all. And they're the primary target. But the Wii, I think, really did it right. You could get games to play in a variety of controller combinations, including the classic controllers, which were backwards compatible and supported the older games. All right. Well, the with the Wii, they had an API. It was a wireless API. So you could hook into that and basically program any controller to use that. I'm thinking what happened with PS3 and PS4 was that they improved the the actual controls right. themselves and they needed either a faster interface or they added some something that wasn't compatible with PS3. So it makes the controller incompatible. I definitely agree, but let's talk about what's different about the controller and you make the call. So it's got a cleaner ergometric design that most people prefer. Mm-hmm. I mentioned already that it felt like a natural extension or evolution and it does. Once you've used them for a short period of time and you go back, they do feel more comfortable. But they've added a share button to allow you to do direct sharing from games, and it has Twitch integration built in and Facebook built in if you choose to use it. So, Hit that like button right on your controller. So you got a button. It also has a touchpad in the middle that doesn't function quite like I'd expected in that I expected the center panel to be 
a bit like uh, the, well, the Steam controller or a tablet or phone interface. And instead, what it is, just a central touch-sensitive pad. It does oh, like a like a laptop sort of pad. Yeah, so it's that's a very great example. So not quite as evolutionary as I'd expected. The top buttons, what we call the shoulder buttons or trigger buttons, are redesigned and they're much better. In fact, that's probably the biggest improvement. Also, out of the box, the controls for the axis sticks are concave, so they're indented, which makes it easier to rest your fingers on it, which seems so obvious. Now, the one thing I never liked about the PlayStation controllers was that the thumbsticks seemed really loose. Yeah, and they're tall, so they had more travel, and Mm -hmm. that's been fixed in the new ones. They feel tighter, more responsive, they're shorter, which, you know, not unlike the gear shift in a car, it's a a quick throw instead of a long throw. Mm -hmm. It improves your responsiveness quite a bit. And I know they've made internal changes also, and I'm not the expert on those, but I did notice that the vibration feature feels sharper and more realistic. Mm -hmm. So I think that they've improved that, and I think there might be more than one engine or more than one axis for the engine in there because uh, it feels different and the games take advantage of it. Other things that are different, there's a speaker built into it now, much like the Wii, which is kind of cool. It sneaks up on you with occasional random noises coming from (laughs) your hands. And they've added the communication built in directly, which is something they didn't have. Now, of course, the side effect is that all of your fun Bluetooth headsets that you had for your PlayStation 3, yeah, not so much. With the Xbox, you can plug a headset directly into the controller and then communicate wireless free from there. Is the yes. PS4 the same way? It is the same. In fact, it comes with a cheesy headset that sort of reminds me of what ships with the Roku, if you're familiar with that. So just a simple in-ear device with a microphone. Yeah, That's nice that they throw it in. And to be fair, I was a little disappointed that some of my nice 5.1 headsets that I've used with my PlayStation 3 no longer work. Anyway, a lot of differences. But overall, what I found is the games, although nothing revolutionary is out, like the new Uncharted, are definitely evolutionary, more advanced. And my first impression is it does exactly what I want. It plays games well without all the clutter of all that extra multimedia stuff, unless I want it. Wow. You've almost sold me on the PS4. You definitely need to play it. But like all launch titles, what's going to make or break it for you is if it has those killer apps. And there aren't as many exclusives as there used to be, which gives you more options and more choice. That's a good thing. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on hardwareasylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS, now available on iTunes. Join us on Facebook or follow us on Google. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2014. Thanks for listening.